Take a few moments and pray, and then get going with uh, what we have for study tonight. So let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, just the big love that you pour out on us. We thank you that uh, we have life, and that more abundantly because that's what you give. And so we receive of you tonight, receive of your love, we receive, God, of your life, we receive uh, just uh, all that you want to give us, understanding, revelation, knowledge. We pray, God, that you'd pour out. We thank you for your presence here. And we thank you that as we've gathered in your name, you're right here in our midst, so we welcome you. We ask that you would speak, that you would have your way, and that we would recognize and we would know your presence tonight. We just give you thanks for this opportunity to gather. give you thanks for uh, just your teaching and your leading and your giving of understanding. We give you thanks, God, that you're here and that you're working in our hearts and you're working in our lives. We give you thanks and praise. We ask God you'd bless this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Reminder uh, for our podcast listeners that we have an interactive feature with Bible study, and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com. That's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. You go there to that webpage, and there's a button that you can toggle, and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And we'd love to hear from you. could be just saying hi, or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. could be something good you guys doing in your life. So drop us a line, uh, leave us a message, and we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. If you have your Bibles, we're going to open up to the book of Galatians. Galatians. Galatians chapter 1. And verses 16 and 17. I need a volunteer. Read Galatians 1, 16 and 17. To reveal his son to me, so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. When this happened, I did not rush out to consult with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went away to Arabia, and later I returned to the city of Damascus. All right, thanks for reading that. Now, Paul's talking about, of course, his conversion and the aftermath of his conversion. Uh, Knowing the story about what happened, he was on the road to Damascus. He was on official business of the Jewish High Council to arrest Christians and to bring them to justice in their eyes. And so he was on the way with some, I'm sure, temple guards and whoever else was going there. And the Bible describes a situation that 
he was knocked off his horse, he was blinded, and he received a revelation. And uh, and so that revelation was of Jesus. And and so he's described what happened after that. Uh, we know that he ended up at a guy by the name of Ananias' house who prayed for him to be able to see again. He also uh, prayed for him as far as relationship with Jesus was concerned. And he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And then after that, as the story goes, he went out and he immediately started preaching in the synagogues, telling people about Jesus. And and that's where it leads off. So this is a continuation of that story where he just says that uh, after this, he immediately went out and uh, he went to Arabia, wherever Arabia is. Uh, we would imagine that Arabia is where Arabia is now. Uh, it may have extended a little bit further than it does now, but that's where he went basically out into the wilderness. He spent time out there. And that's where he was receiving his revelation, understanding of Jesus, of the gospel, of what he would be doing, the vision that God was going to pour into him, and all that God was going to say. Now, God gave him a unique thing, right? and that's something that I think is important to understand right from the start of this story, is that he had something unique to do, and that was he would be called to the Gentiles. He was going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And when I say that, don't put on your hot, cold high-low hat of, well, if he's a positive Gentiles, that means he doesn't reach out to Jewish people. That's not true. Uh, you know that if you read the stories in Acts, he'd go into the synagogues first. He would preach there, and then he would then preach to the Gentiles. So it's not that he was one or the other, but he had a specific call, a unique call, at this point at least, a unique call, that he was going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And that was something that people didn't think could be done. Uh, and And so... No one was going to tell him to do that. No one was even going to agree with him doing that at this point. He, he wasn't looking for anybody to agree with him doing that. He wasn't looking for anybody to, to tell him to do that. God had already done that. God had already spoke to him. God had already given him vision for it. And he was kind of doing that more as he was in the wilderness. And so when it says that he went and he didn't consult with anybody, well, that makes sense because he was going to do something unique. Uh, when it says that he didn't go ask for permission from anybody. Well, no one's going to give him permission. He didn't, he didn't go to somebody and say, okay, what do I do next? Because he already had the call that God was going to give him. So all of those reasons why he would have went somewhere to talk to somebody or consult with somebody, there was no reason for it because of the unique nature of what God was calling him to do. And it was unique. It was something that other people hadn't done. No one had done this. No one had thought of this. No one even thought this was possible. And so he was going to do something that no one would have come up with. And so even though Jesus taught on it, and, and Jesus said that the Gentiles were part of his plan, even though the prophecies that were given over them, over uh, Abraham and over Abraham's descendants, I mean, all of those things, are, they included the Gentiles. I mean, we know that the prophecies were there. We know that Jesus even spoke about it. But no one really picked up on it. And if you think about kind of the, the way that Jesus would speak, he spoke plainly about being crucified and being raised on the third day. He was very plain about that, but they still didn't pick up on that. And, and you think about, well, how much more plain can you be? I will be crucified and I will rise again on the third day. Fairly clear, right? Shocked when it happened. Shocked. Didn't pick up on it. So 
these other things weren't being picked up on, that this gospel and this thing that Jesus was doing was going to be for everybody. They didn't get that. The thing that, that Jesus did was a payment for every single person on the face of the earth. For God so loved the world that he get well, they didn't pick up on that. Didn't get it. So, so what Paul was called to and the direction that he was getting and, and what, Jesus, what Jesus was telling him to do was something that no one understood. In fact, who knows if he did when he first said it. So after a few years, uh, and, and whatever God was doing during those, that time when he was in the wilderness and during that time in Arabia, whatever God was doing, he came back with a clear vision, a clear call, and a clear purpose. And he knew that what he was about to do was something that was completely off the charts. But that's what God called him to. So, Paul, it, it pleased God. And this is something you see in this verse here. It pleased God that Paul was brought to faith in Jesus. It pleased him. And we know from the scriptures that it pleases God when you were brought to faith in Jesus. That pleased him. He likes it. He likes that. He likes it when people are brought to faith in Jesus. And so that was pleasing to him. And I know that sounds, I, I don't, I'm not trying to insult you or anything, but I just want you to think about it for a second. And I don't know if you think about this often. It's like the fact that you came to know Jesus really pleases the Father. He's pleased with that. It was his pleasure that that would happen. And there were certain things in our lives that were brought about that brought us to a place where we could make a decision like that. And it pleased God to bring us to that place. It pleased God that, that Paul was knocked off his horse on the way to Damascus and that Jesus appeared to him. That was pleasing to him. It was pleasing that Paul made a decision for Jesus. It was pleasing to him that, that Paul and, and Ananias were together. Ananias was able to minister to Paul. And then Paul went about and began to do the things that God was calling him to do. That pleased him. All right? And so I think it's important that we understand that, that he's not some neutral observer over our lives. And I think too many times we have this idea of God, we have this idea of the Father that he's some neutral observer kind of watching our life happen and watching the world go around and watching things unfold. And I think that that's really not the God that we know and the God that we serve. He's not a neutral observer. He, he's actually pleased when we come to faith in Christ. And there's other things that he's involved in in our lives that he chooses to be involved in in our lives that he's vested in. And so I think it I think it's important for us to step back a little bit with this and begin to think of God as more of a vested having more of a vested interest in our lives in the daily things of our lives than maybe we were brought up to believe. And this is just one of those examples where we see him emotionally responding to someone coming to know Jesus, Paul coming to know Jesus. And he emotionally responds to other things. And we see that in the Scriptures. I, I'm always taken, when I read the account of Stephen, when Stephen was martyred in the book of Acts, and, and how they describe what's going on in heaven. And in almost every other spot, or every other spot that you read about the configuration of heaven, you've got the Father and you've got Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. 
And he's seated for a reason because that's the place of power, that's the place of honor, that's the place of, of relationship with the Father. All those things are, are described through him being seated there. But at the stoning of Stephen, when Stephen was dying, and he looked up into heaven, it describes it not with Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father, but with Jesus standing. And I'm always taken aback by that. It's like he is so involved in that moment. And, and he's aware of it. He sees it. He knows it's happening. This is the first martyr of the church. Stephen's about to die. He's being stoned to death. Stephen's asked, he's like, don't hold this against him. You know, and, and he's, he's, he's praying for the people that are stoning him. And the, then we get this view of heaven from Stephen's perspective, and you got Jesus, and he's standing, standing for this. And so... I don't know. There's something about that that affects me emotionally thinking about him standing for that moment because he's involved in it. He's vested in it. He's in it with Stephen. And so he stands for that moment. And so I, I want to encourage you when, you take, when you're reading the Scriptures and you see God responding like that to take note. Because I think it will help us to begin to experience God more. To experience the reality of a God who cares about us. To experience the reality of a God who responds to us. To experience the reality of a God who is interested in our lives and really vested in our lives. Because there's something about that that draws us closer if we know that that's the case. That He's not some neutral observer just kind of watching. He's not... He's not watching, he's participating. And so for me, that makes it easier to pray and believe that he's going to answer in those moments. It makes it easier for me to pray and know that he's moved with some kind of compassion in whatever I'm going through. It helps me to understand his closeness to me when I'm needing comfort or encouragement or anything else that he provides, that, that he's right there. And that's how I want to see him. I want to see him as my advocate, not from far away, but from right by my side. And so understanding him in those ways, I think, is an important step in growing in the awareness of Jesus with us. We give lip service, oh, he lives in my heart. Well, Okay, but what would that really mean if you really believe that? What does it really mean that if you abide with me, I abide with you, that he lives with us? What does that really mean, that he lives with you? And what should it mean? That instead of giving lip service or instead of just saying the thing, which words, 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 whatever, but actually understand and say, all right, well, he's with me. Meaning, in this moment. At this time, in how I feel right now, or in what I'm facing right now, or in what I'm going through. And to understand He can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. That He was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. That He understands us. He gets us and He's with us. And I think there's something really important about that that we have to keep in mind, that we have to remind ourselves of, that we have to somehow ignite 
and reignite and kindle that and keep it aflame in us if it's actually going to mean something. So Paul was brought to faith. It pleased God that he was brought to faith. And it's kind of interesting because it really avails us little, if at all, to have Jesus revealed to us if he's not revealed in us. And, And there's a difference between something being revealed to us or someone and someone or something being revealed in us. Because I think something that's on the outside of us, uh, there's lots of things on the outside of us. There's lots of things that we can look at and we can comprehend. But if something's in us, it's a part of us. If something's in us, it affects us from the inside out. There's lots of ideas and there's lots of concepts and there's tons of theology and there's tons of ways of seeing things and perspectives and all those kind of things. And to me, it's a shame. It's a shame that that's what Christianity has become for a lot of people. That after the Enlightenment in Western Europe, Christianity all of a sudden became a subject in college instead of an experience. That everything had to be explained and everything had to be dissected and everything had to be brought into some type of a workable theory and everything had to be somehow brought into a way of understanding, of quantifying, of weighing, of measuring, or whatever it would be. And the great arguments that took place that that, that how much space does does God take up or how much space does an angel take up? And you think in, in all the, the crazy arguments, how many angels could fit, you know the, what I'm about to ask? What, uh, how many angels could fit on the head of a pin? was an argument. Because we had to quantify it. And so the great quantification of Christianity and of God and, and uh, of trying to to make everything fit into some kind of an academic mold was the taking of that which should be in us and and it became something that was just to us. That Christianity became a matter of schooling and books and learning instead of experience. And I mean, God bless the Wesleys I mean, those guys, uh, you, you think about every little town you ever go to in the United States, there's a Methodist church in those towns. <laughs> because those guys and the guys that were saved through their ministry, man, they would circuit ride church to church on Sundays. There were pastors that would go from church to church covering however many miles they could cover, holding services, hour-long services, as soon as they could get there. And they might hold five, six, seven services on a Sunday just to cover all of those churches. And those churches, a lot of them still exist. And this was a movement that was born in the fire of the Holy Spirit. And they did something that was super well-meaning. They, they started it up what we know as Sunday school. And Sunday school became a staple in evangelical churches because of the Wesleys. And 
Methodist. Methodist. They, 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 they brought things into a method. And they taught this method. And children were taught from the time they were this little until whenever they got out of Sunday school. Adults were in Sunday school. But this became a thing. It became an event. It became a school by which people would learn and Jesus would be revealed to them through academic endeavor. Well-meaning. And it has a place. The problem is, is that when that becomes the focus, instead of Jesus being revealed in people, something's really missing. And again, I, I look at the, the Methodists and, and John Wesley, Charles Wesley, I mean, awesome. Okay, I don't... I know it sounds like I'm, I'm being mean about it. I'm not at all. And I'm not, I'm not accusing anything. I'm just saying that that which was well-meaning became something that I don't think they ever intended it should be. But over time, that's what happens. And so, you know, we, we, we've got this, this awesome idea and we've got this thing that God is using to, to really train people and really disciple people. But after X number of years, it just became, I'm going to reveal Jesus to you. And so the Western ideals of Christianity became more of a learning subject matter than the person of Jesus being revealed in people. And, and there's something really missing about that. There's something really missing. And so I, I want to really speak to that as we see Paul here, he describes his journey. And the journey is important. Paul received understanding, truth, revelation over time. It's not just a one-time dump that God just dumps revelation into our head or something. And it's that one time and, and we know everything we need to know. Go. It's not really like that. And it wasn't that way for him either. I mean, he received understanding, he received truth, he received revelation, but it was over time. And it was his seeking of it that, that drove him, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness of Arabia. And you think about the process that took place there. There was a flash on his soul. That was Jesus appearing to him on the road to Damascus. Boom! Paul, Paul, why are you, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I'm Jesus. You know, it's hard to kick against the goads. And, and he's blind and he hears the voice from heaven. And I mean, that's the flash. Bang, there it is. And there's that moment. There's that moment that happens. But then there was a consolidation that needed to take place of revelation and truth into him. Something had to happen where where God was going to continue revealing and God was going to continue to consolidate that kind of revelation, that kind of truth into his life. And that took place over time. It didn't stop him from preaching in the synagogue right after he got his sight back. It didn't stop him from convincing people about Jesus right after it happened. He did those things. But the revelation wasn't done. The work that God was going to do wasn't done yet. There had to be more. 
And so a consolidation of that kind of truth and that kind of revelation and that kind of call that was going to be on his life, he didn't know what his full call was yet. He hadn't reconciled that. He was being called to do something that no one believed could be done. And so God was about the business of telling him, this is what I have for you to do. And I would imagine he had to ask a question in that, well, how is that going to happen? Because in his mind and the mind of every person that would be a part of this, it could not be done. Even though Jesus said it was going to be done, even though Abram was prophesied over that it was going to be done, even though this had been the plan from the very beginning, until that day, people couldn't see it. And so that kind of a consolidation, that kind of an understanding had to be poured out and had to be honed over time. And enough questions about how are you going to do that? Bang, I don't know, but there it is. You know, and maybe the first few times he asked that, there wasn't an answer. But maybe the last few times there was. I don't know. But something happened over time as he was seeking it, as the Spirit drove him into that wilderness of Arabia. Something happened, and a revelation, a truth, was put into him. The third part of that is that he came out of it as an apostle. He didn't go in as an apostle. In fact, this confuses people because there were 12 apostles. Well, there were more than 12 apostles. There are more than 12 apostles in the New Testament. We have no reason to believe that that was the end of the apostles. There were lots of apostles. In fact, an extra apostle, not of the 12, wrote half the New Testament. So if you grew up religious and you grew up all religion, religion, then you're going to have to change that somehow because Paul wasn't part of the 12. He didn't get added in later. They already added one, Matthias. He got added in. They rolled some dice and put him in. And so he got put in. And you say, well, well, the apostles, their names are on the gates of the New Jerusalem. Which ones? The twelve? That ain't Paul. He doesn't even get a name on a gate. If that's, if that's your religious thinking, and if that's the way you want to see it, well, he doesn't even get his name on the gate. And there were others that came after him. You think about Barnabas and you think about Silas and you think about all the rest that came after him and were with him at the time. And there were others that were named in, in the letters that he wrote. Other apostles. He was one of many that God was calling. But as he came out of this time in Arabia, he came out as an apostle. He was appointed the apostle to the heathens. That's the word used in the King James. It just means Gentiles. The heathens. See, we're the heathens. I think all of us here are the heathens. We're all the heathens, all right? Now, on Easter Sunday, I think we had five or six non-heathens in church. Yeah, yeah. But not, not, not tonight. We're all heathens, okay? So he came out of that, the apostle, to the heathens. So we look at Acts uh, 9.15.
Yes. Now, I'm sure that meant hardly anything to him. Because I don't know that he knew what that meant yet. But the fact of the matter was, God was proclaiming truth to him and saying, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim the gospel to the heathen. That's what I told him. All right. Well, that might be the case, and it was the case, but it wasn't going to be today in Acts chapter 9. It was going to be a few years down the road is when that was going to happen. Full force, anyway. Acts twenty two twenty one. somebody. All right. Paul just that's him relating his own story. And so he's given that story out to whoever would listen. Think about that guy being in jail for as long as he was. And I mean, they just toyed with him. He stayed in uh Caesarea. I think he was in jail there over 2 years. They put him in jail. They wouldn't have a trial. If they did have a trial, they they wouldn't make a decision, and they just kept him in jail. And so they kept parading him out to talk to people, and so he had opportunity the whole time he was there to talk to people and to share the gospel with people, whether it be a king or whether it be another Roman ruler or whoever it was, but to be able to share the gospel with them, I mean, there was opportunity for that. But I always wondered, and it wasn't until I had read through this part so many times, I wondered, why did he appeal to Caesar? And because afterwards Agrippa came, King Agrippa came with his wife, Bernice or whatever her name was, and and so they heard Paul. And after Paul got done, uh, King Agrippa said, "Well, if he hadn't have appealed to Caesar, we could let him go." And I often wonder, like, why would he have appealed to Caesar? But then I put myself in his situation. Here's a guy that he's been in hell for two years, two years, and just toyed with for two years. And, and God used that and gave him opportunities to speak, gave him opportunities to do all kinds of things, but for two years. And they're just in, and every, every so often, they're like, do you want to go to Jerusalem for another trial? For what? No one's making any decisions. For what? No one's going to let him go? For what? No one even cares that he's there. So for two years, he's been sitting in this place, doing nothing in jail, and so finally, he gets an opportunity. He just says, "I appeal to Caesar." At least he can get to Rome that way. And so, after I really read that a number of times, it kind of made sense. It's like you end up in some place and you're there for a really long time. Where do you want to go? Anywhere else? Because you're not going to get out of there. And you kind of come to that conclusion after a while. I'm not going to get out of here. What was his way out? Appeal to Caesar. That's what he did. So he tells his story, and, and understanding his story is understanding that, and, and this was taking place after everything he describes here, but in simple terms, like this is what God called me to do. He sent me to the Gentiles, he sent me to the heathen. And so they use a word in here, truth. And Paul had to own the truth. 
He had to own it. And I'm not saying there's not absolute truth. There's absolutely absolute truth. Just things are just true. What God says is true. But Paul has to own that. I mean, you can uh, you can quote Scripture and it's true. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You can quote that and, and that is truth. But you got to own it if it's going to mean anything to you. you got to own it if you're going to be able to proclaim that to somebody else. You have to own the truth. It has to be yours. It doesn't negate its mind. It doesn't negate its absolute truth and it's just out there. But you have to own it. I have to own that. And there's lots of truth like that in our lives that we just have to own it. It's like Paul would eventually, he has to own the fact that he's the apostle to the Gentiles. He has to own the fact that that he's the apostle to the heathen, that he's being sent to the heathen. He has to own the fact that he has been called to do something that no one thought could be done. He has to own the fact that he's being called to do something that, that no one knows how to do. But he's going to go do it. But that's for him to own. He has to own that message. He has to own that power. He has to own that authority. He has to own that call. It really doesn't mean anything. We can talk and talk and talk about all kinds of stuff. And you can talk about anything you want, but if you don't own that truth that God puts into you, then it doesn't have any effect. It just floats around being truth. So he had to own it or it would just be another philosophy or idea. It's interesting that he talks about, and I talked about this, I touched on this earlier, that he didn't confer with anybody. And literally what that word means is to apply. In other words, I didn't apply. I didn't uh, put in my resume to any person or organization about what I was supposed to do. Because he already got called. He knew what he was supposed to do. He got knocked off a horse and blinded. And Jesus personally appeared to him. He knew what he was supposed to do. So he didn't confer because he didn't need to confer. He didn't apply to the person or the organization. He didn't like apply to the, the church, the council in Jerusalem to, to be a Christian. Jesus called him and made him a follower. He decided that. Jesus called him and said, you're the apostle to the Gentiles. Nobody, nobody appointed him to that. He didn't need them to appoint him. They didn't need them to advise him or, or anything else or consult them in any way. Because all that had been done. And so that case, his case, didn't have to be decided. It was already decided. And so they weren't called. They didn't really understand. In fact, they were really, uh, you think about the stories that go through the book of Acts because it was such a radical departure from everything they were taught to believe their whole lives. When Peter went to the house of Cornelius and he's preaching the gospel and they all get filled with the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues while he's speaking to them and then he takes them out and baptizes them. They're all Gentiles. They're all heathens. And nobody knew what to think of that. They thought Peter lost his mind. Then you got Paul doing the same thing. I mean, he's preaching and he's teaching the Gentiles and baptizing the Gentiles and people coming and building churches and setting up leadership in the churches that were Gentile leadership. They didn't know what to do with that. Never seen it before. Never heard of it before. No one had ever done it before. 
And so there was no conference about it until after the fact. He'd already been doing it for years before they ever met to say, okay, let's lay down. What are we going to do with these Gentiles? What do you want from them? Because people were arguing about it and people were upset about it because nobody knew what to do with them. Well, before any of that ever happened, go back, back, back in time when it's just a vision that Paul has. Go back in time when it's just the call of God on his life. Go back in time when it's just God pouring into him and saying, this is the truth, this is what I have for you, this is what I want you to say, this is how I want you to say it, this is the gospel that I'm pouring into you. He hadn't been following Jesus around. How did he know what the gospel was? He didn't have a New Testament. Gideons weren't around to give him a New Testament. He didn't have one. How did he know the gospel? Well, he knew the gospel because he spent time on the backside of the desert with Jesus. But he wasn't concerned about it. He was meeting with Jesus about it. And this is the gospel that he gave him to take to the heathen. This is the gospel that he gave him to take to the Gentile. And it was the same gospel. But understand that it wasn't because it was written down. Understand it wasn't because somebody told him that. It's because Jesus told him that. And this was the word that he had for the people that he was sending him to. But he had to own that. You think about uh, Peter. Uh, somebody look at Matthew sixteen seventeen. Matthew sixteen All right, there's a, a great example of Jesus recognizing revelation. Jesus is recognizing revelation over Peter, saying, flesh and blood didn't tell you this. Flesh and blood didn't show you that. That was revealed by my Father in heaven. And what I want you to hear from that is, that's valid. Let me say that again. That is valid. It is valid that Peter received direct revelation from the Father. Even with Jesus standing right there. Yep. That's valid. That's valid. And so, in our vernacular, in the way that we look at things, you could say, okay, well, it's valid to receive direct revelation from the Father. If, if it's valid if Jesus is standing right next to you, it's valid if you've got a Bible in your hand that you got direct revelation from the Father. Because Jesus is better than the Bible. Okay? So, it is a valid means by which we might receive truth, understanding, direction, that we might receive revelation directly from the Father. Jesus validates it. And so, Paul going off into Arabia, into the wilderness, received direct revelation. And we know it's valid. At least by as a means. That's a valid means by which we learn, by which we receive, by which we grow, by which we take in truth. It's valid. It's a valid means. 
Now, am I going to tell you crazy people don't say that? Sometimes they do. That doesn't make it invalid. You're going to tell me, oh, well, sometimes people hear things and it's weird. No. I want you to think for a second, though, how weird, how weird it would be that God called a Pharisee and put the gospel in him to take it to the heathens. That seems a little crazy. And to the people of that day, not our perspective, their perspective, that would have sounded crazy. Yep. And it took that kind of a revelation for it to happen. So a lot of times when God changes things, when he changes things, it's through that kind of a revelation, that kind of an understanding. If you've ever read the story about Martin Luther and read like how God spoke to him and some of the ways that he heard from God or some of the ways that he responded to God, some of the stuff that took place in his life sounds a little crazy. But God was changing things. And God was about to do something different. And so as unlikely as it would seem, he took a monk, not a particularly good monk, but a monk, and he brought direct revelation to him, and everything changed. And that's what God has done to change things. Because everybody agreeing on everything doesn't change things. Everybody thinking the same way all the time doesn't change things. Everybody, you know, preaching the same sermon or everybody teaching the same teaching, or everybody doing the same thing, that doesn't change anything. In order to change something, there has to be some kind of revelation that goes off the, goes off the beaten path a little bit. And, and that takes a lot of times, every time, a direct revelation from the Father, from the Holy Spirit, into someone's life. And Paul was no exception to that. Peter was no exception to that. It's how things have to happen for something new to take place. The last thing I want to talk to you about is revelation. As I mentioned, uh, Paul received this revelation uh, from God himself. But again, it was progressive and it was not all at once. And and all I can say about that is don't be um, don't be too impatient. Don't be impatient. But let God do what He's going to do when He's going to do it in you. Just let Him do that thing. Because Jesus is being revealed to Paul, but it's really in him, in his heart in his soul, in his mind. And this was a firm inward inward apprehension of, of Jesus. And it wasn't a, a teaching necessarily. It wasn't a course that he took. It wasn't anything like that. It was something that was happening in him. And that revelation was taking place in him. 
And because of the nature of his ministry, it was something that needed to take place before he could actually get out and do what God had called him to do. Because God had called him to do something so weird and so different and so unheard of that he needed to have a firm grasp on it inwardly before he could get out and he could do it. Because every force, every force, external force would be working against what he was trying to do. Every town that he went into, the Jewish leadership, the synagogue leadership would oppose exactly what God had called him to do. And they would bring opposition against him in every single town that he went into. He had to have a firm grasp, inward grasp, on that which Jesus had called him to do. He was going to be opposed. People in the synagogues were going to oppose him. Now, I know this is going to be hard to believe, but people in the church that existed at the time opposed Paul. They opposed him. They didn't like what he was doing. They didn't like how he was doing it. And they actively opposed what he was doing. But he had to be sure that he'd heard, he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And that was his call. Because it was so weird. And it was so different. And it was something that had to take place. If if God was gonna if it was gonna be revealed that God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to die for the whole world, and the whole world was gonna hear that, then all of this that needed to take place in Paul was gonna have to happen. And he was gonna have to be stronger. He was going to have to be, his head was going to have to be harder. He was going to have to endure beatings, stonings, being beaten with rods, shipwrecks, being stoned and left for dead, being whipped and scourged. He was going to have to endure all of those things if people were going to know, if the world was going to know that God so loved them that he sent his son for them. And that's something you got to have that in here. That's not an idea that's going to see you through that. It's not a philosophy that's going to see you through that. It's not someone else's teaching that's going to see you through that. That's got to be something in you. That's the only way. And so this was the process of getting it in him. What we see from Paul here is a simple, I'm just going to give you a simple thing here. When Jesus calls, obey it promptly, decidedly, abandon your course, and go. That's what we see here. I know that sounds harsh. Sorry. We all have a different course that's not the one Jesus has for us before he calls us. we got stuff to do. But when he calls, 
need to obey promptly, decidedly, abandon our course, and go. So that's the simple part of what I said tonight. It's hard, but it's the simple part. The other part is what needs to take place in us. The idea of patience. The idea of waiting on God. The idea of putting ourselves in a position to hear Him and allow His revelation in us, not just in front of us. we got to get beyond the, the school mentality about Jesus. It's not a school. We're not in a school. We're in a relationship. We're in a life together. We're not just being fed subject matter. But He wants to bring revelation in us. In us, not just in front of us. I just want to take a moment and pray. Father, I pray that just something would really click in our hearts and minds tonight that this isn't about taking in material. It's about taking in you. That you want to reveal things in us. Not just to us, but in us. Things that need to be integrated into our lives. Things that need to become part of us that are a part of us as you speak them into us. Because God, I just pray that our life would be more than just the gathering of facts. That our our life in you would be more than just uh, following after programs or being able to recite things or being able to, to follow after whatever it is that we're following after on the outside. But God, I just ask that there'd be something inside that that would change and that would be real and, and that would matter. That would matter. God, I've watched you change people's lives. I've seen it. I've seen people abandon their 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 futures, what they thought they were going to be in order to, to, to just go after what you have. I've seen people lay down uh, whatever it was, a career, or lay down a next step that they thought was going to be so important or something they'd been dreaming about or something they'd been working toward their whole lives. I've seen them lay it down in order to just to respond to you. give you thanks for that. I give you thanks that I had the privilege of being around a bunch of people like that. 
had the privilege of of sharing life with people like that. And I give you thanks. I don't have to apologize for that. And I don't, I don't, I don't have to somehow explain it away. And I don't have to, to make everybody feel better about it. It just is what it is. I've seen you do so many great things. And I just want to say thanks that you're not done. So I pray for us that we find you in us. We allow your revelation in us. We allow your call in us and that you'll change us and we'll continue to receive that revelation in the days and the weeks and the months ahead. I pray you do something that matters in us so that it can be done through us. Pray as people would just answer you today, you bless it. Pray as people would invite you in, you bless it. As people open their hearts to your revelation, I pray you bless it. Thanks, Lord. We receive you tonight. I ask these things in Jesus' name. So we best say amen. 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 Thanks for coming, everybody. Good to see you. UCF and Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ.
You know, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know. He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community. Like the community dad. No, yeah, so there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. Yeah. 